Okay, so uh, thank you again for this kind introduction. This, uh, the piece that we will be discussing today is a piece that uh, Daphna Dolosh-Polyansky and myself uh, co-wrote. Uh, this is a piece that was published uh, recently at the European Journal of International Law. It's an international, uh, international law piece. Uh, and it is um, what, what we sometimes refer to as an agenda setting piece. Uh, it, it doesn't really have all the answers. It actually has relatively few answers. But it raises, we hope, uh, a lot of questions and tries to introduce uh, um, a certain typology to, to address uh, some of these uh, questions and maybe to uh, have a better uh, understanding of the direction uh, in which the field is going to. Uh, at the heart of this, uh, of this um, uh, project, which uh, Daphna is working on for a PhD and I've, I'm working on in, from, 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 from a number of angles, is 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 the uh, is is the quite banal insight that there is a, a significant gap uh, between the uh, growing interest in digital human rights, which you can see in the slide, some uh, relatively uh, recent high-profile uh, instances in which uh, digital human rights questions were um, captured uh, public attention, and yet there is very limited. Um, academic treatment in terms of uh, attempts to conceptualize the, the problems of fit that this uh, specific subfield of human rights law uh, generates vis-a-vis -vis the broader constellation of uh, human rights uh, law uh, norms, institutions, and theories. Um, and what we are uh, proposing in this, uh, in this uh, article is that uh, whereas traditional human rights law uh, continues to apply in, in online spaces and vis-a-vis -vis digital technology uh, issues um, uh, pertaining to digital technology, um, certain there is growing acceptance of the, of the, um, uh, of the, of the view that uh, certain adjustments need to be made. Uh, with respect to these um, these new uh, these, these existing rights, that some new rights have to be developed, and perhaps more significantly, that we we have a, a more perhaps fundamental problem than we have uh, initially uh, evaluated, vis-à-vis -vis the suitability of the international human rights law framework uh, and the political setting that undergrids it uh, for for digital space in terms of. Uh, needs, uh, interests of, uh, of actors, but also in terms of governance uh, power of different actors uh, dominant in this field. Uh, the, um, the point of departure for this, uh, for this specific article is um, what we have been seeing um, in practice, in the practice of human rights law. Human rights law is often um, articulated and uh, reiterated in public fora such as the Human Rights Council, which is a political body in which uh, states uh, come together and uh, adopt resolutions that um, perhaps uh, give expression to the way they understand uh, the law as it currently stands. And what we have been seeing both in the Human Rights Council and also at the General Assembly, which um, um, encompass even a larger number of states coming together and adopting resolutions, is uh, on the one hand increased um, interest, as I said before, in digital human rights law. Uh, so there is an increased treatment of uh, issues pertaining to digital human rights law. There is also increased uh, interest in establishing 
for instance, expert bodies or expert uh, mandate holders that would uh, further investigate the practical application of, uh, of human rights in digital spheres. But on the other hand, we are seeing that the, um, that the point of departure, the intellectual, uh, practical, normative point of de departure for uh, the application of, uh, of human rights in the digital sphere is uh, what we call normative uh, in throughout the paper, normative equivalence. Uh, that is that there is a, a strong belief that human rights apply at the, in the online sphere uh, in by and large in, in similar ways to which they apply in the offline sphere. And this is indeed uh, the, the main normative proposition that the first uh, and second part of the article are uh, concerned with. Uh, for the sake of uh, context, um, this is not a completely uh, new discussion. We have seen very, very early on um, uh, when the internet became a, a very public commodity uh, and access to, to the internet became a household matter. Um, questions had arisen at the time uh, in legal and of course political circles as to whether uh, one should uh, understand um, the application of law uh, to, the, uh, to the internet as uh, something which is an extension of existing laws and hence uh, parts of the internet would fall, parts of the internet infrastructure uh, would fall under the sovereignty of this country and other parts would fall under the sovereignty of that country and certain companies would come would fall under the jurisdiction of this state and certain individuals under the jurisdiction of that state and then you have to basically uh, deal with it as a as what we lawyers sometimes call a, a private international law issue uh, or conflict of laws or maybe you need some international regulation and certainly domestic legislation could be relevant or whether this is something uh, like monty python says something completely different uh, which is uh, a space over which states uh, should have uh, limited um, limited power, limited influence, and therefore uh, it should be conceptualized as a deterritorialized space, which is not really part and parcel um, uh, of state sovereignty, more akin maybe to outer space than to physical space uh, on this planet. And, it is fair to say that this uh, debate has in practice been decided mostly in the favor of the first approach, the, the more uh, state-centered approach. So uh, we do consider at this point in time, uh, the, the cyberspace, the internet, digital technology is something which is um, the object of state regulation, the object of international regulation, and hence comes the normative equivalence framework as a, an application of this um, way of thinking to uh, to the topic of uh, to the subject of uh, of human rights law. Now. Um, we do not contest, it's important to state, we do not contest the idea that, it, that offline human rights are relevant to what's happening in, in cyberspace. And, and we do accept that maybe as a temporary uh, baseline or, or a normative uh, floor, it makes sense before you develop new rights uh, or before you uh, you generate consensus uh, surrounding uh, uh, radical reinterpretations of existing rights, 
it makes sense not to let go of what you already have. But in terms of uh, going forward, we are um, quite uh, skeptical, Daphna and myself, and Daphna will explain further on why, as to whether um, this uh, normative equivalence approach can serve as the principal framework of uh, applying human rights to, uh, to, to, the, to digital spaces or to digital technology. Uh, and, and our greatest concern is about the mismatch between the political structures of uh, human rights law as they were developed in the physical world and the political structures of human rights law as they are uh, interpreted and applied in, in digital spaces. So uh, very briefly, human rights law have been developed around the notion of the state. So, so human rights law, you could say, is a is, is, a, is a philosophical, a legal, a political uh, science, uh, uh, and, and, and of course, practical response to the emergence of a state in the 17th century as, uh, as the locus of governance powers uh, and, and having a monopoly of force. And, and human rights were there to basically curb uh, excessive excesses to uh, limit abuses, to uh, protect individuals from government, and, and later on also to uh, harness the power of regulation that governments have vis-a-vis -vis, um, social services and the like, so as to cater uh, the needs of the individual. Uh, the space that we are dealing with, an online space, but this also applies to some extent to digital technology more broadly, has features which are very different from the, from the classic mold of the state system. Uh, we are talking about the space which is deterritorialized, uh, it is decentralized, it is mostly privatized, and it is also um, uh, very, to a large extent globalized. And uh, thinking, about, thinking about these issues that really have limited bearings to territory, limited bearing to uh, central government power, limited bearing to a, a specific, um, the responsibilities of specific states in specific places, uh, basically to address the field from these, uh, from these very um, specific perspectives uh, really uh, risks uh, engaging in, in tunnel visions that would make you lose the, the broader picture. So, so this is essentially our concern with this approach. That doesn't mean that the resolutions don't have um, some valuable insights for us to, uh, to take away. Uh, so the resolutions, I think, are, are an interesting starting point in the sense that they uh, identify certain problems with uh, the development of international human rights law in digital space, for instance, the problem of the digital divide, or the problem of digital literacy, or problems also within the within developing country developed countries of uh, unequal access to online services and its uh, socioeconomic ramifications, uh, the problem of remedies, how do you actually enforce these laws? when sometimes individuals are not even aware that violations have occurred. So there are many practical issues that are raised. At the broader level, I think that these um, resolutions also help us 
um, at least they provide one possible approach to, uh, to understanding the role of human rights in digital spaces. They basically take the view that um, the internet, which is a central preoccupation of these res resolutions, is a medium through which individuals enjoy human rights. For instance, they express themselves, they engage in political participation, and therefore um, uh, states have a role in, from this point of view in facilitating access to the internet so that so more, as many individuals as possible can enjoy uh, their rights over this space. So for instance, the resolutions underscore that the internet should be global, should be open, should be interoperable. Uh, it's also being uh, access to the internet should be promoted because the internet is an important tool for personal development. Um, they also uh, take the, the position that in order to uh, have meaningful access to the internet, uh, the internet has to be a relatively safe space. So uh, for instance, uh, cybersecurity is an issue. Um, privacy infringements uh, is an issue. Hate speech is an issue because all of these, uh, all of these issues uh, do raise um, concerns about safe access uh, to the internet. And uh, finally, uh, they also uh, think about internet governance. I mean, they realize that uh, this is a governance space and that that governance should be uh, human rights uh, friendly, but um, they also, uh, it's hard for them actually to capture the role that private companies have in this space, uh, the GAFAMs of the world or uh, private regulators such as ICANN. Uh, they have no way to reach them because the human rights uh, bodies typically deal with states, so they basically try um, indirectly to approach governance issues through encouraging states to uh, um, basically facilitate, initiate, engage in multi-stakeholder governance of the internet, and also uh, try to push uh, businesses to embrace um, uh, some corporate responsibility principles. So, so this is the approach which has many virtues, but I think it also underscores the limits of that approach because ultimately we are trying to deal uh, with, uh, with a, a very complex problem through the tools we used in the past to deal with a very different complex problem. So, so it's really about how uh, how easily you can actually transplant your strategy that you have honed in one area to a radically uh, different area. And here uh, we have uh, our doubts. Moreover, and these are uh, some of the doubts that I've alluded to, these systemic uh, challenges in the interest of time, I'm gonna fast forward. Uh, but, but I think that the article then goes to uh, basically observe that regardless of what the, the states, uh, the governments who are uh, negotiating these resolutions and adopting them with, with great fanfare and in Geneva, what have you, or New York, whatever they had in mind, in actuality, we are seeing already a, a certain pushback. So we are seeing states um, adopting new human rights in their constitutions uh, for the digital age. We are seeing uh, some international bodies, uh, for instance, the European Union, but also uh, some other international bodies uh, speaking about um, new human rights, a need for a new bill of human rights. We are seeing uh, private 
associations actually come together and publish uh, a digital bill of rights or digital charters. So, so I think there is a, there is a growing um, uh, acceptance or a growing acknowledgement of the fact that uh, proceeding on the old trodden road of international human rights law may not be sufficient to address the needs. Hence, you need to actually develop um, a new strategy. And here, uh, what we are actually proposing in this article, and this is in a way, I think the main innovation of, the, of this article, is that we are trying to basically identify a typology for three moves that we are seeing uh, as taking place within the human rights movement. I will go briefly over the three and then Daphna will drill down in, into the, the second move, which is probably the most dramatic, the development of uh, new human rights. And we think that actually identifying these three moves uh, helps us um, develop a better understanding of the promise and limits of international human rights law as it currently exists, and, and, and maybe also predict certain future uh, developments in this field. So uh, we are using here something which is within international human rights law, a very uh, well-known metaphor, which is the three generations metaphor. Uh, within human rights law, uh, uh, a notable international lawyers by, by the name of Karel Vasek has developed in the late 1970s a claim, uh, an historical claim that posited that human rights law has developed through uh, three different pushes or three different uh, trajectories, uh, which he called three different generations. And, and that was, I think, a very um, insightful observation because it did uh, it, it was able to attach different uh, approaches to different points in time and different problems that human rights has faced. So in human rights law, the first generation would be called the civil and political rights, which are uh, designed to protect individuals from oppressive governments. Then you have uh, a century later. So these will be the 17th, 18th century rights. Then in the 19th century, you see within domestic human rights, uh, a push towards the social state. Uh, and, the, um, and the harnessing of state power in order to provide social services. So these are the economic, social, and cultural rights. And then in the 20th century, you're seeing another push for group rights or what he calls solidarity rights, which is really to address the collective interests of, uh, of groups of persons such as minorities or peoples, et cetera. Uh, and we were thinking that you could actually identify these three moves not, not, not separated centuries from one another, but still se separated in terms of the degree of their acceptance within the doctrine, but also the degree of deviation that they, pro, uh, that they re, um, represent vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, traditional human rights law. So the first generation is, is really taking existing rights, but reinterpreting them. So one example we give in the article is freedom of expression which is, for instance, uh, we are seeing that because of the features of the architecture of, uh, of uh, online platforms and the spread, the very speedy uh, spread of, um, of offensive speech, for instance, the, the, the First Amendment kind of uh, approach that was probably uh, plausible for offline speech is no longer uh, possible and there are growing expectations for companies to regulate offensive speech uh, or uh, for uh, or disinformation, etc., because of the of the great impact of this speech on on society and actually on on speech on the quality of of the uh, market of ideas, or with regard to privacy, 
we are seeing um, a switch from uh, an offline focus on uh, on an intimate space, private space that the government cannot intrude, and actually extension through interpretation of notions of privacy to the public sphere. So as for instance, to address uh, use of facial recognition technology in the in the public sphere. So in order to do that, we, we really have to reinterpret and, and in a way uh, identify new justifications for, for why we need privacy or even redefine the concept of privacy in order to adjust existing law to new uh, technology. Then we have some uh, second generation rights and, and Daphna will uh, expand on them. But essentially I would say that these rights do, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that they are unconnected to existing rights. They are derived from the basic principles that we find also in existing rights, dignity, liberty, autonomy, but they do uh, express some very distinct needs that you, you're very hard pressed to find within a physical space, uh, such as for instance, data portability, which is something very, it's a right that makes sense actually only when you have um, a kind of technology that uh, is so much dependent on data and on who holds the data and how you can use the data. So it's really uh, intermeshed with the technology itself. Uh, so we argue that this is the second generation and we are starting to see that in certain contexts. It's not as widely ex accepted as the first generation reinterpretations, uh, it's, uh, it's, but it's, it's growing. And then there would be a third generation of rights, uh, which um, really um, take human rights law and revolutionize some key aspects of it. Most importantly, uh, well, firstly, it would uh, expand maybe also to apply to the rights of digital persons. Uh, this is something which is just starting. We've had um, about two months ago, the European Union has issued a draft declaration on, uh, on human rights uh, for the digital age, on digital human rights and principles. And there, for instance, they are talking about a right to digital personality, uh, they're talking about a right to digital legacy. So, so these are new um, aspects about relating to personhood, which existing human rights law has not really uh, come to terms with. So we are actually drawing in the article an analogy between uh, the emergence of corporations as, as right holders and the emergence of uh, virtual persons as right holders. Uh, and but then perhaps more dramatically is an attempt to apply concepts of uh, obligations deriving from human rights law vis-a-vis -vis not governments but actually technology companies that exercise what we call quasi-governmental power. So the argument would be that when Facebook is deplatforming de uh, the president of the United States, it is actually exercising a, a, a governmental-like power. It is drawing up rules it is adjudicating claims, it is enforcing its uh, principles. So, uh, so, so the argument goes that uh, as power shifts from governments to technology companies, um, there would be a justification for developing these norms. And we are again starting to see here and there some harbingers of this uh, tendency of trying to apply uh, these uh, norms to technology companies, either by incentivizing them to self-regulate, uh, introducing in the, into ethical codes of design these ideas, but also gradually also extending the, the purview of uh, review by 
law enforcement bodies vis-a-vis -vis, uh, these companies. So I think I'll stop uh, now, Daphna, and hand, in, hand over to you to maybe go a bit deeper into uh, second generation rights. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Yuval. Um, and so uh, indeed, as, as Yuval described, we, we propose in, in, in the paper to move, to move beyond the normative equivalency paradigm. While the normative equivalency paradigm is established on the perception that the same human rights uh, that people have offline would apply online as well, we suggested to take a different approach to, to develop modalities to the new generation of human rights that would complement the existing human rights framework that we have in order to capture those, those new challenges that you've always mentioned, the new challenges um, um, that are new in the digital, in the digital sphere. And so one of them um, was the development of new digital rights. Here, these are the second generation uh, human rights. And these rights are, are rights that are designed for the digital arena. Um, and there are two types or categories that uh, we describe in the paper, two types of, of those kind of digital rights. The first is rights that simply have no equivalent rights in the offline world. So those are the kind of rights that represent needs or values or interests that we cannot find in the offline world. There is no close parallels um, that we can draw from. And the second group of digital rights are rights that they might have similar equivalent rights, but are not fully subsumed in the human rights from which they originate. Um, and those rights, uh, those rights in the offline world does not really capture their significance in the online virtual world. And so the, the first, uh, I, I wanna exemplify it by, uh, by, by, by two rights. The first one is the emerging right not to be subject to automated decision-making. Um, and this really a kind of right that, that shows that some concerns are just did not exist in, in the offline world. Those, those are new concerns. Um, and we are witnessing uh, in, in recent years, the significant decisions in various aspects of people's lives are increasingly shifting. They're shifting from the hands of humans to algorithmic machines. And those algorithmic decisions are based on data gathering, on processing, on analysis, which often predicts human behavior. On the basis of, of these certain classifications and predictive formulas, they produce a, a decision. And it raises legal concerns and ethical concerns, um, such as uh, bias as a result or a lack of transparency, um, that the current international legal uh, framework could provide maybe an answer to some of those, of those concern, uh, concerns, but, but it cannot really provide an answer to the mere dehumanization of the, of the process. I mean is that boxing individuals into algorithmic categories and limiting basically their possibility to, to make a, a conscious choice to be to not belong to a certain to a certain specific social group um, is a concern in and of itself. Um, and those kind of decisions, such as judicial judicial decisions or administrative decisions, um, Usually, when they are taken by by human beings, they have um, they use moral intuition or moral agency, 
uh, that involve kind of an interpersonal interaction, which machines just don't, don't own. And therefore we can maybe justify designated a specific new human right that would preserve, it would preserve some of this human sense or human control um, over the decisions that are, that are based on, on this data. And I should say that a notable development in this field is already, we can already in the GDPR in Article 22, uh, that provides that data subjects uh, has a right not to be subject to a decision which is based solely on automated uh, processing. Um, when those decisions kind of produce legal effects uh, that, are, that significantly affect the life uh, of the data subject. And, uh, and moving to the other type of right, uh, which is um, uh, exemplified by the right to internet access. So those second, those, those digital rights, um, they are a derivative from rights that already exist in the offline world, but they're not recognized as a standalone human right because, because under the normative equivalency paradigm, new technologies are viewed as tools or channels to exercise offline human rights. In other words, the internet is only a facilitator for the already existing human rights. Um, but if we take a closer look and examine the right to access and how it developed in recent years and what it means really, what it means for people's lives today, um, especially uh, uh, when we think when in, in this time, you know, of a, a global crisis, COVID-19, uh, we understand that uh, it's much more than a media. Uh, it's, it's much more than a way to perform our right to free expression, uh, to free expression but it's, it's really, uh, it, it's an access to an arena of social interaction and the key uh, element to perform other human rights. And so uh, I, I, there, there are three uh, uh, main justifications uh, for, for acknowledging it or for, to justify it as an independent right. The first is really an, a, a normative justification. And a normative justification is more focused on the social process of recognizing uh, the rights. And we, we see both on the national level uh, and in the international level, level uh, um, uh, decisions that support um, a, a right to, uh, a, acknowledge the right to, to access. For example, uh, several countries have already recognized the right to internet access in their legislation, such as Estonia and Spain and Finland. Um, and also in the international level, we see more and more declarations, documents referring to, to, to access to internet as a right. And already in 2011, the, the uh, United Nations uh, Rapporteur for Free, for free ex Expression he didn't really present it as a right, but he did emphasize that states have positive obligations to facilitate the right to free expression over the internet. And we see over the years that really global and regional bodies, the Organization for American States, the Council of Europe, the African Commission on Human Rights, uh, have repeatedly emphasized the importance uh, of ensuring access to, uh, to the internet. It's really an indispensable component uh, for realizing other human rights. The second, um, the second aspect is more of a moral aspect, uh, moral justification that's focused on the role of, of internet access today. 
Um, and as I said before, it's really hard to imagine how we can manifest any of our rights today without access to the internet uh, or new technologies. And because it's so um, uh, necessary um, and vital, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more a, a, right, a right to have rights. Um, and because perhaps when, especially when we think about it as a very, uh, what is becoming a very powerful arena today to, to, shape, public, uh, to shape public opinion. Um, and I think it really connects to what uh, Yuval has mentioned about uh, Trump being banned from, from Twitter and Facebook. It, it's not as in, in the often words, a newspaper didn't take his quote or something. It's, it's more similar to, to an exile than, than to just disconnection. Um, and coming back to the COVID-19 example, digital uh, platform um, were the only way to, for people to be in any social interaction, uh, to, to, to exercise their right to work, to access health services, et cetera. So um, when we think about um, what it means to shut down internet connection, especially in times of crisis, uh, for example, in times of war, of, it, it creates it creates a, a, a sense of, of, of chaos in, in society. It might uh, bring to, to chaos, to uncertainty, uh, a sense of helplessness maybe uh, of, of the public. Um, and, and, when, and indeed the, the, the right to, to, to access, it has two components. So the first one is really about the, the access, the, the infrastructure, uh, the internet connection, uh, which I mentioned uh, how um, vital it is today. Um, and, and, and this is again, another reason to, to think about it, uh, to, to underscore why it should be a right, because um, it's some, some sees today, some sees as a way to overcome the digital divide. Uh, we need to remember that uh, I, today, I, I think a last report from 2021 uh, by the ITU showed that 37% of the world's population have never used the internet. Um, and, 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 and this aspect, to, we, need, we need the right in order to, to, to kind of draw from it and, and see how can we overcome um, uh, the, 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 this problem. The other aspect um, is access to online content. We are witnessing in recent years that digital platforms are exploited to promote fake news, propaganda, harmful content. Um, and we also see, I mean, a, a reports from recent years uh, in, by the, the UN uh, Rapporteur for Free Expression really indicated that internet shutdowns mostly happening um, in those sensitive times, in times of elections, in times of, uh, of uh, political rivalries, of, of armed attacks. And so, and, and we see now a, a very vibrant debate um, yeah, when in the situation in Eastern Europe, there is ongoing discourse between Google and Meta and Twitter and Telegram and um, the, the government, Ukraine, Russian, and, and also the European Union and the US officials on how those companies need, what's their role and, when to, and how should they tackle this information and fake news um, that in this kind of time risks 
um, uh, can really risk people's lives. Um, this brings me to, 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 to the other question, and, and Yuval has also mentioned it, is to what extent can we demand from those companies to resist restriction on access to the internet? Um, and the fact that these kind of decisions are really still in the hands, I mean, of internet access, of what content do we see, um, it's all in the hands of private entities, raises a question if it's, if it's kind of a, it creates a legal anomaly uh, in, in, in that sense, because, because of, of its, its, its meaning. Um, and the third and last justification to, to recognize it as a standalone human rights is more focused on the uh, utilitarian aspect. We, we need to name a right uh, in order to develop enhanced protection frameworks. And um, as a practitioner, I must say that beyond the moral value, it's very hard to develop uh, frameworks to protect human rights, develop them to create suitable and, and effective remedies and, 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 and to, 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 um, to do this fine tuning that many times we need in those sensitive issues, such as filtering content. Um, um, it's very hard to do so without having a right uh, to internet access. And um, it also might help to develop a sense of entitlement uh, for the users themselves to, to claim, uh, to claim uh, those rights. So just to summarize uh, this point, um, I guess it's the, the extraordinary social effect um, of the internet uh, on human conditions and the fact that it's becoming a right which is vital uh, to, to human life, it supports the fact that we see it as an, ad, it has an added value in and of itself. Um, a right that we, we can't really find, um, it's the same importance manifest, manifested in, in, in rights from, from the offline world. And that's, this is why we need to think about how to conceptualize it as a new digital um, human right. And um, Yuval, do, do you have anything that you would like to, to, to add in this? No, I think we are, um, our, our work here is done and that we are very happy to uh, hear questions, comments from, uh, from participants in this seminar.